border. So you were not allowed to travel that easily to Sevastopol. And that's what you need to understand. And there were a lot of, it wasn't only Sevastopol, I believe uh, the other, I think Yalta as well. Um, basically those cities that were closed. So it means that the people who were settling there, they were absolutely brainwashed to the highest extent because they were following the regime and they were part of the regime. Now, um, people who were actually uh, getting a permission to travel there, that's the people who would receive only one vacation and it will be only seven or eight days. And that's how long you could remain on those territories, right? That's how the, what the tourism look like. And that's why even after this 1991, that's why it's shocking to see even 70% of people voting this because they were absolutely to the core brainwashed, right? Um, and that's why when I was mentioning also about the Tatars, nobody cared about the Tatars. So the Tatars could actually uh, return back to Crimea only when Ukraine became independent. And a lot of them already couldn't because, you know, they already had families and already, you know, they were settled. So it was really hard, I think, to go back to the, you know, to the place where you were deported from. And it was really hard to return to the motherland. Now, important thing to note is that we shouldn't forget that the mass deportation didn't happen just once. So before the Crimean, uh, you know, Tatars de uh, deportations and everything, we shouldn't forget that this territory was taken from Osmans. So it was even in the 17th and 18th century, right? The Russian Empire was conquering Crimea for a really long time. And even Tolstoy and others were writing about these times because they were, you know, absolutely doing the ethnically cleansing at the time because those territories, nobody lived there. Even Ukrainians didn't a lot of them live there because there was one of the ports where the Turkish, well, Osmanian at the time, um, they, were having the, they had their own military bases there. And they had their own city called Kaffa, and this Kaffa was used uh, for trading slaves. So nobody would give it for free to Russia. And Russians had to conquer the city. They had to absolutely ethnically cleanse them and put their Russian soldiers and the later Cossacks and Ukrainians and everything, because otherwise this territory was absolutely no Russian whatsoever. And we shouldn't forget this, because this territory doesn't belong even to Ukrainians in a sense. It belongs to the people who were living there. But unfortunately, the first people who were living there, they were killed. And the people who came there and lived there, like Crimean Tatars and everything, and who were living there for centuries, they were also sent away. And that's why there is a deep connection now between, you know, Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainians and the Crimean Tatars, because they can actually talk and share the grief that they went through. The Crimean Tatars understand what Ukrainians experienced, experienced in 1930s, and they understand what Ukrainians went through with the Soviet regime. And, you know, ultimately, Ukrainians understand what the Crimean Tatars went through. And that's why, you know, there is no disagreement in this sense. And everybody now in Ukraine is supporting the Crimean Tatars. And one thing to add, just a little uh, last thing, uh, there was a really good film Unfortunately, I don't remember the, how to translate. I actually don't remember the name, but it was made by the Crimean Tatar. And the Crimean Tatar right now in Ukraine is one of the most active, um, you know, communities. Do you, do you mean, Mikola, do you mean High Karma? Uh, probably High Karma, but there was a second film. It was Doroho, something like that. I don't remember what it was called. Uh, it's by Amelie. Um I think, I think it's Amelie or something like that. So, yeah, um, I'll try to search for it and I will tell you later. But, yeah. That's a little thing that I wanted to add about uh, Crimea. I'm sure, actually, 
I mean, we should do um, kind of like a planned discussion about Crimea because... We should, and actually yeah. I'm, I'm in touch vaguely with someone and should get into better touch with them who uh, yeah. knows the knows the situation really well. And uh, maybe we will schedule something along those lines in the coming weeks, sure. actually. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Uh, one thing I wanted to add as well, just for kind of also like a personal experience thing that I can add to you. So um, as I grew up in Ukraine, I actually managed to go three times um, because I was like a president of school and everything, I went to Artek. So Artek used to be a camp, um, and it still is in Crimea, and it's, it was considered to be the best camp during the Soviet times. Only like the uh, the most uh, kind of um, like geniuses in mathematics or different type of uh, kids who would win the Olympiads or the ones who were the best sportsmen could go to Artek. So. Our tech was actually a very interesting place because when you would go there, you would have people singing in Ukrainian and people singing, of course, in Russian because there was a population and everything. But even during the 90s, what Russians started to do, they, pl- they asked to put a specific director in our tech who was a director for our tech because actually it was a good generating money machine as a lot of people wanted to go to our tech. So they would sell the places for other children to go to this camp. And uh, later what happened is that attack was used as a place to um, kind of propagate the Russian interest. So what happened is that they would invite the Russian singers to sing in attack. And of course, a lot of local people would come to this event and they would see that, you know, um, Russian singers are sitting there. They would organize the different type of events where they would organize the singing competitions or cultural competitions or something like that. And it was all happening in Artek. And what could be like an innocent play place where children could play with their, you know, kind of teachers or anything became a, a high for all those uh, Russian imperialists to come and propagate their own ideas. Because they would talk about how, yeah, let's celebrate Ukrainian independence like little fellow brothers or something like that. And this narrative would be consistently sent there in attack and, you know, closing regions to it. And yeah, it was it was kind of a horrible experience, to be honest. Um, because, you know, Russians were thinking about deploying the, <laughs> how should I say it, um, propagating the interest there for a really long time, really since the beginning of, uh, you know, of Ukrainian independence. And it was the 90s. Thank you, Mikola. I think you've given Sergio about seven questions now. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> not so, not so dumb. Um, that's, that's, it's fascinating, um, Mikola. Um, and before I cycle down, I, I, I would just like to personally uh, uh, thank you for 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 your content. This is this is exactly why I love this space. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Sergio. Um, so, Mikola, I just want to highlight some things that you that you've noted. Right, I think it's it's really important for people to understand how the history of Crimea went, and how um, you know wh- why the attitudes in Crimea were, you know, a bit different over the over over time, uh, and especially the attitudes there now being a little bit different than they were in the rest of Ukraine. And that is by design, right? That is by design by the Kremlin regime. This is an accidental. Um, but for people who say, oh, Kherson is next to Crimea, therefore the attitudinal uh, cross-section in Kherson should be the same as it, is in, um, as it is in Crimea, right? That is completely untrue because Kherson, unlike much more industrialized areas, simply had less of that 
planned intentional migration during the times of both Tsarist Russia, but then also the Soviet Union, right? You had fewer of those large planned migratory flows from Russia into these much more agricultural areas that were a lot less interesting, where a lot less change was happening than the highly industrialized area, the highly militarized areas, right? Be it be that, say, um, Donetsk, Luhansk, Krivirich, uh, for, for the industrialized ones, or the areas like Crimea that were highly militarized, right? So what was the question? Or was it just a comment? I just wanted to say, I just was waiting for you to say yes. Um, but, and and sure, also, yes. since you since you touched on the closed cities, right? Uh, closed cities, as you said, you couldn't decide to move there. Somebody had to basically send you there. I guess you could technically refuse, probably. But but people also got paid more, right? That was part of the reason why they went to closed cities. A, they got paid more, but B, they also got access to things that people in normal cities wouldn't. They got access to, um, literally access to goods that, may, that normally only Moscow and St. Petersburg and then the closed cities would get, correct? Pretty much. Um, and also, you shouldn't forget that basically it's it's a luxurious place. <laughs> Everybody wants to live next to the sea. <laughs> Not just wants to live next to the sea, but also it's one of the nicest places because well, it wasn't all Soviet, right? Because it was so already built up, especially cities like Sevastopol. They were completely built up already in, in Tsarist times. They were genuinely nicer looking than most Soviet constructed cities. No, absolutely, absolutely. As they well invested, as the weather. They invested They invested a lot of money there. So um, one of the, the most prominent hotels called Druzhba um, was actually built next to Sevastopol. And at that time, it was considered to be one of the best projects that happened in Soviet Union. Um, you can find the you can find the photos online, but um, it's really interesting because it's built um, kind of not on the mountain, but on the what was it called? Uh, just a second, I'll tell you more about it. Yeah, go ahead, go go ahead, I'll, I'll find it. <clears throat> and you know, these closed cities, just for anyone who's curious, anything that had to do with anything nuclear. Anything where nuclear industry was based, be it uranium reprocessing, it didn't have to be for bombs, just anything to do with nuclear things. Um, all of that was in uh, uh, in closed cities. Any highly military things were closed cities. Uh, anything where a lot of science and development happened, that also happened likewise in closed cities. Closed cities were all over the Soviet Union. For example, Narva in Estonia, I believe, was a closed city uh, where they did some uranium reprocessing as well. Uh, there were closed cities wherever uranium was mined, say in Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. Um, there were closed cities wherever there were large military installations. All of those were closed cities. And you couldn't enter without a permit, right? There was a gate at the entrance to the city. There were people there with guns. And if you didn't have the right papers, you couldn't go in. And if anything, you'd, you'd be sent somewhere completely else instead. So that's something to maybe pay attention to as well or, or keep in, keep in the back of your mind. So when people were chosen to be sent to these closed cities, it was people who were specialists, right? Be it military or engineering or science or whatever, but it was people who were specialists, which means they were highly trained. But to, in order to be highly trained, you had to have been politically cleared in the first place. And politically cleared usually, not always, but usually meant either Russian, or it meant people who were following the the regime in other respects, uh, not yeah. not not just being Russian, but sometimes people who weren't Russian but were particularly devout followers of the regime. Let's say 
they were even more convinced, right? They were even more convinced that Parachiks than than the Russians would have been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, just to add a bit of things. So it was actually a Druzhba and it was built in 1986 uh, by Soviet architect Igor Vasilevsky. And the structure overlooking the sea was so ominous that Turkish spies assumed it was a secret military building at that time, <laughs> because it really looks like a hive. And uh, yeah, I was going to say that um, you're absolutely right. So not a simple person would be able to come to those areas. But you should also remember is that the cities had the limit on the population. So um, basically, they were not allowing the population to grow as much as they wanted. So what happened is that they would have a limit of extra 1,000 people per year. And that means that they will fill this quarter and that's it. So when no one else will be able to live there. So for example, um, I think my grandmother, she wanted to live at some point uh, because of uh, my father and everything. But what happened is that she wouldn't obtain the permission um, because it was impossible. Uh, you had to have someone in the family who had a party uh, ticket and uh, they had to be quite high in the ranking. Otherwise, it was impossible. And just generally, right through the system of internal passports and... Um the system of internal migratory controls it was very much down to the authorities to decide who goes where absolutely no absolutely they will do the checks on you even before you travel so um the, the, just the concept of a closed city is a very funny one right it means that you cannot travel on the train so when you go on the train they would ask you where is the ticket you would show the ticket and where's your permission and you're like which permission so that means like you had to obtain it from the commissariat at the time and uh, that was so fun. <laughs> Since we were talking so much about Kherson earlier today, and because of the, the bridge being struck, and um, because of the counteroffensive that, let's say, we were expecting, um, can we talk a little bit more about uh, agriculture as well as other industries in Kherson? Um, we know, say, for example, Zaporizhia and uh, the Dnipropetrovsk Oblast, those are very industrial. I mean, at least northern Zaporizhia Oblast and then all of Dnipropetrovsk Oblast are very highly industrialized areas, right? With a lot of heavy industries, with a lot of metallurgy, with a lot of machine uh, machine industry type stuff. Um, what is the... Um, is, is there any actual industry in Kherson that isn't to do with food production and food processing? Not really, no. So the one thing to add is that uh, basically, although it was used as agriculture, it would be also used... Um, for um, they're saying that it was used for um, stock raising. So, for example, like pigs, cows, that would be the predominant kind of areas there. And I can give you a bit more statistics. So, um, actually, the region itself possesses about 2 million hectares of agricultural land, uh, which is the greatest share of uh, plowed fields in Ukraine. And... Um, to understand that in two million in two thousand twelve, more than two million tons of this production was grown and collected there, which is a huge amount. It's like you know you could feed Europe. <laughs> it probably does. So that's quite important. And uh, one thing to note is that basically it had scientific and technical support. So you had different universities specializing specializing in this industry, right? So it was Institute of Agriculture and Southern Region. There was Kherson uh, National Technical University, Kherson State Agriculture University, Institute of Animal Breeding in the steppe regions, Askania Nova, which is Askania Nova, it's um, what's the name for it? The um, Nature Reserve? Yes, uh, but it's 
nature reserve or converse you know con- it's the biggest in ukraine um what's it called conversation Not national conversation. park yes that's the one conservative conservative <laughs> like like na- nature nature conservation area yes, yes. yeah yeah, yeah and they have a bunch of the przewalski horses there as well yes. right it's kind it of is. a step step preserve yes. precisely and um, and przewalski horses you know it's basically it's considered to be the first horse that is still alive to this day so most of the breeds that came out in the world they came from przewalski horses that's why pretty much all the doctors and uh, all the veter- vets in the world know Przewalski horse. <laughs> so it is indeed a very highly agricultural area, as is Southern Zaporizhia Oblast as well, right? Much of Southern yeah. Zaporizhia is very highly uh, the uh, only thing, agricultural. The only, the only thing you should also remember that the industries that are going to be there is, of course, going to be, you know, um, because of uh, shipbuilding. So they used to, they used to have the... Um, quite um, Because they had access, basically, to the Azov and Black Sea, that's why and Dnieper, uh, that's why you had the uh, basically the stuff uh, in regarding to shipbuilding, and that's why you also had the transport infrastructure. So um, that's why you know this area was mainly agriculture and mainly transport because it just sat in limits. So yeah, and the industry that there is, there's quite a lot of chemical industries. What I wanted to also tie into. And this is something that has been abused a lot by Russian propaganda ever since they invaded these areas because they said, oh, you know, this was some sort of a, it was a chemical plant, as though not every agricultural region had a bunch of chemical plants because that's how you make fertilizer. Uh, and there are chemical plants all over Ukraine and have been there for decades. And there's chemical plants all over, you know, southern and western Russia as well for very similar reasons because wherever you have a lot of intensive agriculture, you are going to have a lot of chemical plants. And uh, that's why occasionally when one of them got hit uh, by an artillery shell, for example, there's a big orange cloud coming out. Uh, and then you had the Russian propaganda saying, oh, you know, these, these horrible Ukrainians, they were trying to poison us. And not just being like, well, of course, there's nitric acid when you're trying to make fertilizer because that's how you make fertilizer from nitric acid because you're trying to make nitrates. Um, and and that is the one kind of bit of industry that is quite present in all of these agriculture areas because it's much more convenient for it to be wherever these resources are going to be needed and consumed as opposed to having to be carted in from somewhere far away. Yeah, precisely, Roman. And just to kind of um, draw the one more conclusion is that basically this territory was um, kind of a net exporter in a good sense. So it had actually a good uh, positive balance of foreign trade um, because it's the it's the one that was actually trading with a lot of countries in the world. And what they were claiming is that they, they were they had a foreign trade activity with almost 111 countries of the world. And uh, yeah. And again, a lot of that goes to um, a lot of that goes to agriculture. Right? A whole lot of that is agriculture, 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 because Precisely. people from all around the world buy food because do you know what all people do eat food yeah. uh, very very simply put um, precisely and that's why uh, you know even the whole situation it makes it absolutely um disgrace because the russians they don't care about the economy right so um okay they take this part but they cannot even export anything from that territory normally officially or whatsoever because what they have to do, they have to steal this grain and then they have to find the, the way how to export it so nobody knows that it's Ukrainian. 
And the people in the end who are living there, they are suffering because they cannot sell it for the real price. Um, they have to sell it pretty much for free or the Russians are just taking everything what they want from them. And it's just harming the people and the community that is living there. And no matter what type of community it is, even though it's absolutely Ukrainian, uh, but Russians never cared about it. Uh, they never cared about their own people. So why would they care about the people in that region? Um, that hydropower plant at Novokhovka that's integrated into the dam at Novokhovka, uh, it's also the lowest hydropower plant on the Dnipro, right? It's the last one. It's lowest down, down the stream of the Dnipro. Um, and uh, if, I'm just, if I remember correctly, that was also built at a time of sort of when they tried to industrialize and modernize this historically very uh, farming, very agricultural communities of Kherson Oblast uh, in the 1950s or 1960s, right? Um, but what's now very significant is that also it, it built a connection across uh, across the river there, across the Dnipro, and there are very few um, there are very few connections across the Dnipro that far south because the Dnipro gets very wide and it gets very inconvenient to build lots of uh, lots of bridges over it. Uh, that's also why this um, uh, that, that's also why this bridge, this Antonovsky Road Bridge that we kept talking about earlier today, that was struck again for the second time of the day in a row by the Ukrainian military. Um, that's why it's also so significant, right? Because it's it is the lowest place on the Dnipro when you can cross. And even though the river still goes another, you know, hundred odd kilometers before it enters the Black Sea, um, there isn't anywhere lower down that you can actually cross. And I think that, is, that that's quite a strategically important point there as well. Um, I'm just checking if it's been struck since again. Nope, seems no, uh, no news from, uh, from the bridge since then. Um, no, uh, so what happened is that in today in the morning, I, I think it was mentioned that basically the, um, in Novokovka they had this uh, station. Um, the Russians put their own um, transportable station uh, used for identifying the missiles and everything. And it was, uh, you know, shot. So we'll see what happens uh, in the evening because obviously everybody knows that it's better to organize the attacks in the evening as it makes the HIMARS and other artillery, artillery um, actually a better way of defending them at night because the Russians, they don't really have the technology to identify um, those objects at night. And um, yeah, kind of the night plays on the Ukrainian side. Um, and also to remember that <clears throat> is that because they shut down this uh, transportable system, um, it, it makes them weaker for now. So I'm telling you, they're going to use this opportunity and they will... You mean, the, you mean the radar system in Novakovka, yes, right? Yes, pretty much. Pretty, yes, precisely. So that's why Ukrainians will use the opportunity and will size it. Uh, just wait until the night. Um, and actually, to add a bit, uh, Pentagon just confirmed that they will send four more HIMARS to Ukraine. So, yeah, which is really positive news now. Yeah, you know, four more every... Uh, uh for more every week that's going to make a difference right if they just keep doing this for another few weeks uh just increasing and increasing the ukrainians capabilities in this respect and especially with HIMARS not really being consumables apparently because russians are yet to hit one seemingly um it would just build up and build up and build up um ukrainians capacity to hit things at a long distance on the point of hitting things from a long distance david um are you uh are you about? Are you available? 
Uh, yes, I am. Sorry, I wasn't listening, but I, I heard David. Right, I'm assuming uh, yep, talking exactly. to me, right? I, I am, I am, I am. Uh, what I'm wondering is, uh, I'm thinking you've had ample time now to review the second video that I sent you with more mm-hmm. videos of, of the holes. Um, what, what do you think? Any, any conclusions you've made from that? Any, any thoughts? Well, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be putting a, uh, something really heavy over it. I, I, the, what I'm uh, interested in is just how not deep uh, the reinforced concrete is. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm just thinking a couple more hits on it and they won't be able to get anything really heavy over it without considerable risk of it falling through and making a very, very big hole, which would... Um, stop your ability to uh, or or limit some of your ability to get um your foot traffic over if they need to get your foot track traffic over um uh yeah sorry i'm i'm I think because as as i'm thinking this through it goes through my mind because i'm going because at nova kakovka where which is the obvious escape route that's a very long straight road which is just asking to be hit by accurate art so I, I, I suspect they've they've made a very very good trap uh, for uh, the russians do we know how many russian troops there are in the area um i am not the right person to be asked that i am not sure i know I that Kherson, the city itself has mostly rosgvardia troops and the actual troops are further out but Mikola, if you have a grasp of that yeah, so so the comment that basically the people actually said it was fifteen uh, battle tactical groups allocated in Kherson um, and nearby regions. So fifteen of them. So Seven and a half thousand. Fifteen thousand. Uh, about six hundred in a BTG. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. so I typically don't think of things in BTGs. I think of things in people, in numbers of people, right? And then I just add the mix myself. Okay. Uh, okay. Right. So I think a BTG ranges from about 600 to 1,000, depending on what yeah. type of a BTG it is, if it's more armor-heavy or more infantry-heavy. Yeah. So I guess 800, averaging out about 800, so let's say 12,000, 13,000 people-ish. So, yeah. so a, a considerable number of people to get over a, a small bridge, right? But that's that's just not this, that's not just the city of Hexon. I think that's everything that's on the right back of that. Uh, of, uh, of course, yeah, exactly. except for you have to go... Um, so the next bridge is up at, um, I mean, it's way past. Either either Novakakovka or Kherson. Yeah, okay. So I was I was looking. I was going. So uh, so they wouldn't go as far as Nikopol. Um, I think is. No, there's nothing there. So, they're, and they're oh, not so, there. Russians do not have positions okay. much farther. So that, so that so that, that was the point I was trying to make is is that so they've uh, they've got fifteen thousand that need to get over um, very few points, right? Um, if that's what they were uh, uh, going to do, um, Nova Kokovka, um, I, I, well, I'm, I'm just thinking what a sticky position these yeah, guys that's the, are that's in. That's the right? only two options for them. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, exactly. I just think that's the only two options. Yeah, for or them. the rail bridge, right? And you you just took a stick a load of trucks in there. Uh, the uh, and you know those the grain silos they've got on there. You were just chuck troops into the into those as well right if you were trying to get them over and then you would be leaving all your equipment i reckon if you um if if they do try to get across the rail bridge instead so the rail bridge is is a couple of kilometers upstream Mm -hmm. from the road bridge that we've been looking at the whole day right um 
if they're trying to uh, to get um, people on that uh, across that rail bridge instead, then I mean, how hard would it be for the Ukrainians to just launch a high Mars pod at the railway of on one of the sides of the bridge? Exactly. Maybe while the train is there, yeah. right? Because the train isn't going to go very quickly across it either. So even if you don't take off the bridge. Just you just destroy the railway just before you hit you get to the bridge and uh, and you can take out the train at the same time with the same strike very easily and and you you could uh, one person could take out the train uh, simply by uh, with you know uh, a kilo of pl- plastic on a, a bit of you know each rail track right or just one so it wouldn't even but it's all it's all it's all pre sighted yeah of course it's fundamentally it's all pre sighted yeah, of course they, it is they've they... got all the plans in I, I'm just going I, I I'm just thinking it just what a, a a really really tricky situation uh, that the Russians are in at this moment in time, um, uh, because and as you said, the only the only surefire route they have is Novokovka because uh, the chances are that the Ukrainians are going to want to take out their power plant is just very very slim, right? Because uh, the loss of life if you had floods and the rest of it, and and it's it's something you want to keep because that's the part of the essential infrastructure of the area, right? You don't want to be denying your own electricity to your own people, do you? So, mm. um, yeah. So the bridge. So go back to the bridge, right? Uh, the, the holes are quite substantial. Some of them are, are, are quite a lot bigger than just the size of you know where the, a missile's punched through. Maybe something's exploded there. Um, uh, putting a 45 or 50 ton tank over it um you'd be if you were the tank driver you'd be very very worried and you certainly if you were if your option was to just wander behind one you certainly wouldn't be getting in it would you right a, a four ton truck you might put over so you could get a load of troops in it but that would be pretty much it i wouldn't be looking at anything else i mean who know i mean as i said and and what New Zealand was saying is is that reinforced concrete um, uh, does have some very very strong characteristics, right? But on a on a risk basis, I wouldn't be thinking about doing that. And and the is the Russian artillery there? Is that on the south side of the Dnipro? Surely not. So there, north, there are right? both sides. There, there's both. So there's quite a lot of Russian artillery on the right bank, and let, let's let's use right bank mm-hmm. for, for the north and well, the north and the west, right, and south mm-hmm. and and left bank for the east and the south, just because it's um, the the river makes turns, um, and then the the cardinal directions are a bit less useful. So on the right bank, there is definitely Russian artillery, and mm-hmm. they know that because they keep shelling Mykolaiv. Mm-hmm. Um, Ukrainians took out some. Uh, Uragans. Uragans are the big rocket, multiple rocket launch systems. Uh-huh. Uh, I think the 300 millimeter rockets, maybe, maybe, uh-huh. or the, they're bigger rockets than on the Grad, that's for sure. So, and, and slightly longer range, quite substantially longer range. Um, and they were using those to shell Mikhailiv because the Grads could no longer reach it ever since Ukrainians uh-huh. pushed the Russians back to Posadpokrovsky. Uh-huh. Which is sort of halfway between Mykolaiv and Kherson, um, but Ukrainians managed to do some counter battery fire with who knows what, maybe Panzerhaubitz and maybe Caesars, uh-huh. maybe they they didn't tell us with what. Um, again, is those and actually took out a few of those Uragans um, about a week ago. Uh, there is still plenty of other artillery that you, that Russians have on the right bank. Uh, there's quite a bit uh, further up north, I believe. 
towards Krivirich. So there's basically two main axes uh, between um, uh, oh, the, the, the Ukrainians are pushing the Russians back. One is from Mykolaiv to Kherson, and it's on three different roads, I think, uh-huh. broadly speaking. And then there's the other one going south from Krivirich, so kind of parallel to the river. Um, and, and those are kind of the two separate, um, you know, cardinal directions that the Ukrainians are pushing the Russians back. But I believe there's quite a lot of Russian artillery still up there north towards Krivirich, because um, at least three, four days ago, maybe five days ago, I still heard of them uh, using artillery there to hit the suburbs, the southern suburbs of Krivirich. Uh, which is a, a classic pincer movement, isn't it? Or the, the Zulu horns, right? You go around the edges and come back in and then encircle people or, or whatever, or, or herd them out as, as in actual fact what they're trying to do, isn't it? So, God, you wouldn't want to be rushing in there, would you? No, but of course, having taken down, uh, take, taken out that big ammo depot at Novakakovka, that is, oh. I believe, severely depleted their ability to actually use their artillery up in the north of Oskarivyri. Um, because, I mean, they're out of ammo, right? More or less. Yeah, Not entirely, think, but what think, can you get on, on a few on a few trucks that uh, compared to thousands of tons possibly of ammo in that one? No, it, it, exactly. And they've taken, around the Kursan area, they've taken out a lot of, uh, of ammo depots there as well, haven't they? Right. So they're going to be limited in supply. Um, at the, then you've got the problem with the trucks and obviously resupplying people. Um, yeah, I, I, they're a bit screwed. Uh, for want of a session, I think it just looks like they're going to want to push them over the uh, uh, over that uh, the bridge at Novokovka, right? So, it's the, and again, it's funneling, right? It's funneling yeah. them into a much smaller area. And, and if, if it's only one way they can go, and I think this is why it's interesting right. that they haven't destroyed that bridge on the E57 mm-hmm. or whatever the road is that leads parallel to to the Dnipro from Kherson towards Novokovka, right? towards yep. Vesele or whatever that city is across the river from Novakovka, technically. right? That, I think, is quite significant as well because that's the one bridge still across the Inkoletz River uh, that Russians can get to from Kherson. So it's pushing them far- further north because they probably will realize that the railway bridge is kind of a no-no because uh-huh. that can easily be struck, right? And, and a whole train can be de- demolished in one of these high-marsh salvos. Um, how long does it take for the HIMARS uh, missiles to uh, to get, you know, 70 kilometers. Oh, I have no idea. I'm not a rocket man. Uh, but the, I'm, just having a, I'm just having a the, 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 thing, guess. Right? The, these are, I, these are supersonic, right? So Oh, of course. I think it, I think Mark II, 1,500 miles an hour. I think uh, it's a little bit over Mach II. However, the arc, they obviously don't fly in a straight line, right? They don't fly yeah, like yeah. a crow. They fly in a parabola. I think the ground speed is around Mach 1. Uh, so if you're if you're say, say they're going about sixty kilometers away, mm. uh, sixty kilometers would be about uh, f- five. Five seconds. No, 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 no. Much longer than that. Um, so yeah, so what, Mach one is about twelve hundred kilometers an hour, I think. Right. So uh, seven hundred and fifty miles an hour. Yeah, yes, about right. Yeah. Yeah. So so tw- tw- about twelve hundred kilometers an hour, give or take. Uh, divide that by sixty. Uh, you get about 50 kilometers uh, a minute, right? So maybe about roughly a minute total flight time from launch to to strike. Um, And a train, if it's a long train, that takes a lot longer than a minute Mm -hmm. to pass a point, 
especially a train that is going on maybe not so well-maintained tracks and is full of stuff, it's not, it's not going to be going very quickly, right? So it's very easy for them to make sure that they still, uh, you know, hit the train or maybe uh, strike the far side of the bridge just as the train enters the, the near side, right? And, and then block off that bridge for all intents and purposes as well when it's full of train. Uh, yeah, and I go back to the obvious route, the, the M14 uh, that goes on to the P47, uh, which is going uh, along uh, that, the bank. And you go, these are very, very straight roads, right? Uh, so anything that's traveling by vehicle is going to be a, a target for many, many things, right? Let's just assume you've got, um, you've got your uh, infantry troops with Ren laws and the rest of it all positioned in there, ready for the Russians to be escaping there. They're just uh, it's a shooting gallery, basically. Only vehicle going there becomes a target. And uh, you have to assume that those areas are going to be mined, right? Um, strategically, whether they're um, culvert bombed types, right, where people have just already uh, dug underneath it, they could have used the hot weather and the rest of it, could have dug up uh, 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 bits of the uh, um, the road, just laid some stuff over it. I mean, uh, it'd be a real worry. Mm. So there are some news, um, there is basically some news in, in regards to um, HIMARS, that basically Ukraine now has the 300 kilometers uh, range. The Atticans, right? Who said that's that? It. So that's quite interesting. Uh, it, it's in the social media, I don't know. I see a lot of channels. So I'm just waiting for confirmation from the news, but that's just the, you know, kind of the news that I've seen right now. Um, I'm waiting for the confirmation, I'll let you know. But uh, yeah, that's what I'm gonna see now. So please keep an eye out for any sort of official announcements because yeah. Uh, Reznikov, the Ukrainian Minister of Defense, a few days ago, I think just before the weekend, uh, told, uh, I believe, the Financial Times in an interview that um, conversations are drawing to a close about Ukraine getting them, uh, getting the attackers. Those are the long, longer range, much larger missiles that uh, you can launch from a HIMARS launcher or an M270 MLRS launcher. Um, but there was no you know, confirmation of it already being in Ukraine, right? And we were kind of speculating that maybe this is the last we're going to officially hear about it. And then the next time we hear about it is when 20 attackers hit various Russian uh, major logistics points and assemblies uh, 200, 300 kilometers back from the front lines all at the same time. Because why? what would it benefit Ukrainians if they tell Russians, oh, now we have the ability to hit you way behind the lines, uh, why not just go ahead and do it, right? Because that, that seems to be the most uh, practicable, most useful way of, of using them, possibly. Um, that's why I'm kind of surprised if there is actual confirmation. Now, what has been explained to me by good people such as CJ, who have been around these uh, HIMARS before, is that the way that the pod, the missile pod on the outside looks exactly the same, apparently, whether you have the six missile pod or you have the one missile pod. Because the um, Atakum's missile is a much bigger missile, so only one fits per pod instead of six. And what's been explained to me is that they look on the outside exactly the same. They even have the little ridging uh, on the outside of the Atakum's pods that really makes them look like the six missile pods. So until um, the front of the pod, there's like a little door type thing, kind of falls off, or a little hatch, drops off, so that 
it reveals that there is indeed only one giant missile in it. Um, you can't actually know that this is a pod that has an attackums in it visually. And I think that is meaningful. And that's meaningful in the sense um, that you won't be able to tell on social media just because somebody, you know, says, oh, I've driven past one. I bet that's an attackums or I've driven past the logistic transport. I bet those were attackums until they're actually launched or until there's official confirmation. But at the same time, the official confirmation isn't worth anything until and unless um, they're actually being used, right? It means something in the sense that it kind of scares Russians and maybe makes them panic and move all the stuff that's 100 kilometers away from the front lines back to 200, 300 kilometers away from the front lines. Uh, but beyond that, it, isn't, it doesn't have too much of an effect. So I don't know why they would necessarily warn them instead of trying to you know, destroy all of the capacities within the, the attackers' range and especially all the logistics capacity that would allow them to, in future, bring more stuff. Uh, that is not currently within the range of attackums. No, that's precisely the case, Tom. And so I'm just waiting um, the official confirmation. But I guess there are two things we shouldn't forget. That the first one is that Ukrainians don't probably want to kind of um, absolutely say it aloud because then Russians would move it. Uh, but then on the other hand, we've already seen that they started moving their uh, ships. So they already dislocated them from Sevastopol to, what was it, um, another port in Russia? Novorossiysk. Novorossiysk. The, the thing is, apparently, there's a little bit, um, uh, it's not entirely clear just how many ships they've actually relocated from Sevastopol to Novorossiysk, and it doesn't seem to be a complete move. Um, the, initial, uh, the initial announcement was overstating things a little bit, and apparently there's a bunch of ships still left at Sevastopol, if not the majority of them. Um, possibly even no relocation. Um, I, th- I think there's a lot more... Um, information needed to be to be sure what exactly happened but it seems that at the very least the initial reports were vastly exaggerating the amount and the uh, you know proportion of the black sea fleet that was previously based in sevastopol that had since left sevastopol for novrasis uh yeah and just to add a bit of uh, news to this is that lavrov today mentioned that uh, due to uh, west supplying more weapons to ukraine the um kind of the goal uh, the goals basically have shifted now, and it's not only Donetsk and Lugansk, and that's exactly what Ukraine was saying before. So now, um, yeah, uh, Russians will continue the war until they grab something else, and that's what m- was mentioned by the war. Yeah, now it's not just Donetsk and Lugansk, right? But when they were uh, trying to capture Kiev from three different directions, then that, that they were just doing that because of Donetsk and Lugansk alone, right? Um, that's how that works. So this is exactly, yeah, it's absolute nonsense and everybody knew it even before that. But the interesting part that they finally accepted it. And um, yeah, for me, for me, it's actually, it's very strange, you know, especially if your leaders are continuously lying to you and you can catch their lie within a month, you're still trusting them. But there is definitely some problem with the logic reason, I don't know, logical reasoning. <clears throat> So it's it's the usual uh, Russian approach of just throwing everything at the wall and uh, different things will stick with different people. And most people, especially in Russia, don't really pay that much attention to all the details. And most people will just kind of tune into the news every once in a while. And it, it's more about the intent, right? It's more about the general message of we are a wonderful empire and this great country more than it is about any of the specific details. Um 
because as long as you actually pay attention to all the specific details, of course, nothing makes sense. Uh, but if you're just there for the uh, baseline message of um, hurrah for the great empire, then it, it's a lot more internally consistent. Because it doesn't matter what the truth actually is. And when you oversaturate it with all the different options and all the different versions of what you claim the truth to be, um, it's a lot easier, I'd argue, to uh, persuade people uh, to just you know, blindly trust you and follow what you say. Mikola, has there been any news on um, when the, the sham referenda are supposed to be held in Hetson and Zaporizhia? Um, yes. My understanding is that they've moved it to September. Yes, um, uh, that's what uh, also Russian media reports on Medusa. Um, they're claiming that it's going to be happening on 11th of September. And the reason for that is because it's a national day for referendums in Russia. So um, they want to kind of unite it with all other referendums that they had. So they want to, um, that's the date is circulating, 11th, 11th of September. But nobody knows whether it's true or not. So Yeah, so for um, reference, for anybody who's not been following, the Russians have announced the referendum in Kherson about, well, five times now. And every time thus far, they've managed to cancel it simply because I think they've realized it would be completely impossible for them to uh, proceed with it. Um, and so there's many more, you know, if it, I'm sure that there's a Wikipedia page that tracks it, just how many Kherson to join the Russian Federation referenda have now been uh, announced and then swiftly canceled just a day or two before the referendum was supposed to happen. And Russia, of course, has a history of uh, these sort of referenda. Uh, they've obviously done one in Crimea in 2014, just after occupying Crimea. Um, the Crimean Tatar population, of course, didn't vote. Um, plenty of other people did vote who never previously lived in Crimea, um, or people who were just based in Crimea as a part of the Russian naval base uh, that Russia was effectively renting from Ukraine. They voted in the referendum of Crimea. So that just kind of illustrates just how these, these sham referenda work. And for the Russians to not have been able to actually proceed with these sham referenda in occupied territories of Kherson and Zaporizhia, um, it's kind of an indictment of their own incompetence and inability, right? Because A, when you'd allow your soldiers that you just brought in to, to vote, and they've already started shipping people in, you know, faithful Kremlinites from Crimea, uh, shipping them into Kherson, for example, already. Um, how hard would it be to get for for them to get all those people to vote, right? Yeah, one thing to note is that basically um, the what they did at first they was try to give the Russian passwords to people, and um, and they failed. So the people, you know, they didn't take those Russian passwords. Then what they started doing, they started confiscating Ukrainian passwords from people. And saying that, well, if you don't have, you know, uh, Ukrainian passport, you basically don't have any documents. So do something like you need to have some identification. And people still didn't go and take Russian passports. And now they are just forcing people with their guns um, and saying that if you don't have any ID or identification, basically, uh, we're going to shoot you down. So, yeah, they're going one step at a time, but they grow, you know, they're gradually forcing people and people will not have any chance. Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be even worse than Crimean um, case, you know. But it's really an indictment of, on their own inability. That's, I mean, at the end of the day, that's something that should be, that should really be remembered here. Um, 
they're completely unable to even conduct a referendum in an occupied territory, and they're not even have they're not they don't even have to conduct a referendum. All they have to do is um, forge the results of a sham vote. So, how hard could that be? Um, especially for a for an organization with all this institutional practice and experience of doing this this already for uh, years in many different in many different locations. I wonder, Mikola, I remember hearing that. Uh, Russians themselves claiming that they were managing to issue a few hundred passports a week in Kherson. Is that still a number that you think is probably true? About 200, 300 a week? I wouldn't, I, honestly, I wouldn't know. Um, and for me, I, you know, I, I don't know where you get this even statistics from, but the one thing to understand is that even if people get Russian passport, what does it It's mean? not because they want to, it's because exactly. they're forced to but do so at the point of a gun, mean? yeah. What does it mean? So, for example, people even in Crimea, right, uh, when they were have, you know, when they had those Russian passports, or anything, they would come to a referendum and they would put some absolute rubbish on the blanket, you know, on the post where they vote. So, imagine the people who actually experienced the war and who, you know, lost their relatives, they seen everything. How are they gonna react during this uh, referendum? So. What we're going to see is that Russians will try to orchestrate the theoretical performance of people voting and that they will just sabotage everything because they always do it. They did it even in Russia itself. So when they were voting for Putin and everything, there was so much sabotage and so much, you know, kind of falsification that you can't even say that there was, you know, there were any elections. Oh, of course. Um, I think the, the number of about 200 was actually coming in from the Russian occupation authorities, um, not, no one else. And I just wanted to highlight how how few people, despite having the guns pointed at them, how few people actually acceded to take on a Russian passport. Um, and it should also be noted that these are, I believe, exclusively Russian internal passports. So for anybody familiar with it, it's, well, let's say it's more similar in, in utility to a U.S. driving license or a European ID card than it is a normal passport. You can't cross borders with it. It's just for travel within within the country. Right, ladies and gentlemen, um, since it's about the top of the act, just a quick reminder that this is the Maria Report, and here we talk about Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, today is Wednesday, the 20th of July. It is 3 p.m. in Central Europe, 4 p.m. in Kiev, 2 p.m. in the UK, uh, 9 a.m. Good morning, East Coast of America, and 6 a.m. on the West Coast. Um, it's a very early time for some of you indeed, and at the same time, our Australian New Zealand friends already went to sleep. Uh, and it's already a uh, Thursday there. Um, and that's a funny thing how time zones work, isn't it? Um, the big news today thus far is that the bridge at Herson, the Antonovsky Bridge, was hit again. This time, we believe, by another full pod of HIMARS Gimblers. That's at least what our artillery officer, friendly artillery officer CJ, CJ says, because the holes are simply too close together for him to be trusting that this could be done by tubed artillery. And, well, you know, he's the one to overestimate the abilities of tubed artillery usually rather than underestimate them. So uh, he's probably right in that. Uh, the Russians are effectively left with three ways to cross the Dnipro. Well, they always have three ways to cross the Dnipro. Um, the road bridge, the Antonovsky road bridge, the one that was struck, there's a railway bridge a few kilometers upstream, and then circa 100 kilometers upstream from that, there is the dam at Novokakovka. And it seems that the Russians, David, would you say that the Russians are being funneled into making hard choices and being funneled into um, very think, few choke points across where, exactly which they could retreat? I was thinking um, they've been uh, 
pushed into a place where they're limited by their ability to escape. Choke point, exactly. I would also like to note, David, that um, it seems that there is um, it seems that there is uh, no update today by operational command set. Uh, what would that suggest, David? Because most days we see an update by operational command south of the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, yes, exactly, right. So uh, I, I would suspect they, they're trying to keep the Russians uh, um, guessing, right? And maybe, just maybe, something's so, actually something brewing, happening. Right. Always radio silence before something happens. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to jump up and speak, if you'd like to ask something, uh, David used to be a sapper in the British Army, uh, so he's pretty good at figuring out how to take bridges down or put bridges up uh, at the drop of a hat, right, David? Um, or the, the like drop of many speak, hats, Maybe right? ask David something. Yeah, absolutely. well, depending on how big a bridge is, uh, then just click that request button in the bottom left corner and we can bring you up. Um, if you'd also be so kind as to share and retweet the space, click the big blue button in the bottom right corner. That'd be greatly appreciated. We've had some technical difficulties earlier today. I think we experienced three crashes in the course of seven hours. Um, and that was very frustrating. I think it's chased some people away. But we've been nice and stable for, um, give or take, three and a half hours now. Uh, something like that, maybe four hours even. And that's been um, a great boon for us, I think. Uh, a lot less stress uh, a lot more pleasant a listening and moderating experience. In some other news regarding Ukraine today, uh, the Paris Club, uh, that is a group of major countries in the world, including the US, UK, France, Germany, Japan, and Canada, um, decided to suspend its um, uh, requirements on Ukraine to service its debt until 2023 until the end of 2023. Um, and they've also appealed to other Ukrainian creditors to reach a similar agreement on uh, debt repayment suspension until the end of 2023. Uh, that, I'm, I'm sure, is going to be very warmly received in Kiev because it's one fewer thing to deal with right now. Now, Ukraine doesn't have particularly extensive foreign debt, actually, so it's not too much of a problem. Um, but it's very significant to um, note that it will be uh, there'll be just one fear worry for the Ukrainian government for the time being, right? So, David, if you have, say, you know, 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 Russian troops on the right bank of the Dnipro, how quickly can you reckon you can actually get them across that bridge? Or how quickly can you get them across the, say, two connections, two stable connections that they have? Um, how many soldiers can you get across a bridge? Uh, well, hour, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of the throughput, really. It really depends on how you prioritize this. If they, uh, it, let's say, for instance, they decided to try and prioritize getting their tanks over, right? Tank doing 30 kilometers an hour over that bridge. You can't put maybe two or three on it at any one time. And we're talking about the one at Novokovka here. The other bridges aren't going to be of any use for the, those tanks. Um, it's going to be hours to get 12,000 people across. Hours. And I think I'm, as you know, I've, I'm... I'm just going, it's an oh gosh moment, right? I wouldn't be, if it was me, I wouldn't be going anywhere near any of those bridges. I, I would personally swim across the river and leg it on foot. That's the only way I'd be thinking I'd be able to keep myself fit, uh, safe. So it's hours, right? So if you've got a 1,000 people, so if you think about the Antonov Bridge, which is a kilometre, 
but that's been denied to any heavy traffic. So the traffic going over it, you're seeing the cars moving, they're going at what, you know, 10 kilometers an hour, if that, right? Um, they can't go much faster than that. Of course, when they've, when they've escaped out of the, the, the danger zone on the bridge, they can go uh, quicker, but you're limited by the rate you can go over that one small space, right? If you've got, you know, 100 people trying to cross by foot, your uh, vehicles can't move very quickly. So we're talking hours. That's a, a very, very, and all the spaces are a very, very uh, um, uh, dangerous places to be. Thank you, David. Um, I'm very pleased to say that we have I Like Wendy with us. I've missed the I Like Wendy. Uh, 